This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, a podcast takes a lot of work edition. It's Wednesday, August 17th, 2022. On today's show, is the new A24 thriller, Bodies, 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 a triumph of TikTok horror or a bust? And then Paper Girls, the Amazon Prime adaptation of a Brendan K. Vaughn comic about newspaper delivery tweens and cosmic time mysteries. And then finally, Netflix's beef with the unofficial Bridgerton musical, a fan art project that it tolerated until it didn't. Steve and Dana are away this week, but never fear. Joining me today is friend of the show, soon to be uh, knighted as O-U-K-F-O-P, official United (laughs) Kingdom friend of the program, and co-host of Slate's working podcast, June Thomas. Hi, June. Hey, Julia. Thank you. I, I can't wait to be invested. Can we do like the thing with the sword and the kneeling somehow yeah. via Zoom? I don't uh, have a sword. No. And also, you know, after buddies, 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 I don't want to be anywhere near any swords. Fair enough. Okay. It's going to be a virtual knighting ceremony with invisible swords. <laughs> Boop. We did it. She's a knight now. Fantastic. Woo. Um, we're also going to be joined today by an array of illustrious expert guests who I'll introduce as they arrive. And first up, we have our very own editorial assistant at Slate Magazine, Nadira Goff, joining for Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Welcome, Nadira. Hey, glad to be here again. All right. Well, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is a new horror film from boutique hip indie distributor A24. It's directed by Helena Rain, uh, screenplay by Sarah DeLapp, and story by Kristen Rapinian. She of uh, Cat Person, the story that went megavi and engendered a bunch of discussion when that story's backstory came out in the pages of Slate. It stars Amanda Stenberg, Maria Bakalova, um, with an important bit of acting from Pete Davidson, um, and features essentially the travails of a bunch of 20-somethings who are way too online, who all gather at one of their fancy houses to have a party during a hurricane. They play bodies, 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 which is basically a killer or mafia, and then the lights go out and violence ensues. <laughs> um, violence and, you know, many fraught confrontations amongst the friends and members of this group. So before we dig in, let's listen to a clip. Here you're going to hear some characters getting real with each other about how much they actually esteem each other and each other's work. I don't know what you're talking about. You hate listen to her podcast. Wait, what? And you made a swear on our lives not to tell anyone. Jordan, is that true? I like your podcast, Alice. What is your podcast about? Hanging out with your smartest and funniest friend. Did you just groan? No. When I said hanging out with your smartest and funniest friend. Like that. Like that. You did it again. No, I didn't. First of all, a podcast takes a lot of work, okay? You have to organize the guests. You have to do a Google calendar. And and you, you build a following. It takes a lot. 
Um, we hear there the voice of Rachel Sennett, who um, was a breakout in the film Shiva Baby um, and is also a fun internet comedian in her own right. Um, and you can hear in that clip uh, both the tonal promise and maybe the tonal problem of this film. The main characters are both being followed and we are concerned about them, but they're also being satirized and skewered. And um, sometimes it works better than others. Nadira, I know you've seen this film and have been engaged in many heated discussions about it. Can you tell us what you thought of it? Does it work? You know, I've talked to a lot of people, as you said, and there have been a lot of heated debates. And I was very surprised to find that there are many people who actively dislike this film, not even just think it's okay, but actively dislike. As someone who is on the cusp between Gen Z and Millennial, I really enjoyed this film. I thought it was funny. I thought it was scary in the certain moments it needed to be, but I'm not that big of a fan of horror films anyway, so I didn't need it to be any scarier. But mostly I thought it was actually good commentary on Gen Z and how we talk to each other, how we think about ourselves, how we interact, our relationships with technology and with audience, you know, and I really enjoyed it. I really love the sound of the movie that you described, which doesn't (laughs) sound that much like the movie I saw. June, what did you make of this film? Oh, I'm that person that Nadir has been arguing with. Uh, I I wanted to like it because apart from it, then I was like, I know that a movie like this that sells itself as like, what was it that, that Lena done? You know, the voice of the generation, like these are, this is the, the country house drama of, of a generation. And I was like, I, there's nothing new here for me. I want it to be a bit different from like the Agatha Christie version. Right. The only difference here is that the Agatha Christie version is good. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm so glad that you found that clip because I did laugh because I had forgotten that there was anything funny in it. Like, it just felt, I didn't hate it, I guess, because I just find it so meh. I just, so many of the things that I think were supposed to be, you know, this is the TikTok generation version. Like, I saw so much of it in other shows. You know, there's a bit where they're, the group of them just kind of and constantly are doing TikTok dances. And at one moment, Lee Pace, who's almost like the dad figure, uh, comes in and, and, so tries to do it and messes up. I saw that exact scene in a Netflix show called uh, Get Close, I think it was called, or Stay Close. Um, you know, the, the power goes out. Well, again, that's in every Agatha Christie movie. There's nothing new about this. Um, you know, a podcast, okay, that was a funny line, but I feel like, honestly, it's harder to find a movie these days or a TV show that doesn't involve somebody making a podcast. Like, it just didn't do anything for me. I just sort of like, okay, when's it? When's the good stuff going to start? It just seemed a bit of a, a mess to me. I think I came down a little bit in the middle. I mean, I the concept of this is so exciting, right? Like to, first of all, give me black comedy horror over real horror any day. Like same. Yeah. Yeah. Regular listeners to the show know I do not like watching horror movies. We keep making me watch horror movies. It was not fun to watch this horror movie. And actually, this is like the only horror movie that I've ever watched where I've been like, I wish that was more scary. (laughs) Because it, it, you know, without spoiling too much for this conversation, it's, it's pretty clear from pretty early on that there are a couple potential explanations for what's happening in the house. And um, one of them might be there's a terrible, terrible big bad. And one of them might be, um, you know, a little bit more embedded in the psyches of these people we're getting to know and the culture that they're embedded in. Um, 
And it just, the kind of potential for something dark and funny where you both are rooting for and sympathizing with the girl who's overly fixated on her podcast and also can laugh at her when, you know, if the, if the whole tone of the movie were as taut and in between as that little clip we heard, I feel like I would have liked it a lot more. But instead, the tone of the movie is sort of weirdly sincere, and yet we don't really feel like we get to know the characters very well. I I just, I wished that the film was either meaner or more sympathetic, like it seemed like it was a bit betwixt in between. Did you have that response at all, Nadira? Yeah, I completely agree. I think my biggest sort of critique of this film is that it doesn't give us enough time with any of the characters. And by the time that some of them die, as we know, some of them will, when they die, I just was kind of like, but what did I know about them? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It seemed like the film was really focused on trying to get a specific group of characters towards the end so that it could have a specific set of scenes or conversations. And I think that those scenes and conversations were really good. The ones that show the girls sort of eviscerating each other verbally. I think that that is when the movie is at its smartest. It deals a lot in the way that Gen Z actually talks to each other. And I think what's so stellar about those moments is even though you get funny moments like Alice saying her podcast takes a lot of work and her saying she has body dysmorphia when someone else claims that their mother actually has a very serious and severe mental health issue, you still know that they still love Alice, even though she says all those ridiculous things. And you know that even though they're tearing each other down, if it wasn't a slasher film and if they could all walk out of that house at the end of the day, that they would all walk out still friends. And I think that that has a lot to do with the way Gen Z thinks about itself. Like we are very self-referential. I think that we're very aware of the fact that we're self-obsessed, but we're also very aware that society has been set up in a way to sort of keep us that way because they can sell us lots of things or they can market us lots of things. And I don't think that that's something that we think is good, but it's something that we definitely know. And I think the movie doesn't really get into that deeply until that second half. But the first half is really a lot of setup for people dying that we don't know much yeah. about. And I really wish that we could get to know them more. Yeah, I mean, I also don't ever wish movies are longer. This is like a nice 90-minute movie. but yes. And I, I can't say it needed to get longer. I think it actually just needed to have a different first 45 minutes. Like, the aesthetic is really fun, you know. And it, the, the aesthetic of the house is a little odd. It seems like kind of, it's not pure McMansion. It's like McMansion with hipster pretensions or something, which was <laughs> also kind of intriguing. Um, but... The, like, the aesthetic is great. The music is great. A lot of the actors are quite good. Like, you know, it, this is Maria ba Bakalova's follow-up to her very acclaimed breakout performance in the most recent Borat film. Um, Amanda Stenberg, obviously, has, has been holding our attention on screens for years now. Um, even, even Pete Davidson's pretty fun to see in this part. And Lee Pace is incredibly charismatic and interesting. Yeah. Um, not, you know, and the Rachel Senate performances, Alice, that we heard the podcast lines from is terrific. You know, there's a lot here, but it, it, it kind of needed a trip through the pacing blender, I think. Um, yeah. or maybe even a couple of the characters needed to be cut and the, I, you know, the, the, the twist ending without getting too much into what the twist ending is has a bit of a quality of like deflating the souffle, I think. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I think you're right, Nadira, that towards the end of 
the film, the relationships start to gel and the scenes start to crackle a little bit more and we start to care about what happens to all these people in a different way. And it starts to get funnier, like we're kind of yeah. with them and we're with them and against them at the same time in a more electric way that feels new and exciting. And then <laughs> the finale is a little bit of a like, boop, like puff. The whole thing kind of pops a little bit. The air comes out. Yeah. I wanted more, like, I, I guess I just wasn't served at what I was expecting. You know, I, mm. I, and I did go into this with this expectation that like, this is this generation's version of a, a kind of film. I'm not really so fond of the slasher version, but the mystery version is one of my favorite genres. Um, and I expected there to be kind of setup of, Oh, you know, you, you old folks, you have some really bad ideas about this, this young generation. And I wanted them to be undercut. And I didn't get that. And I always think that when people say, I didn't get what I want. Well, that's not what the filmmaker is supposed to do. You know, just because you didn't get what you want. That's no, that just doesn't have anything to do with the quality of the film. But I just think it like, it didn't question itself. It just, it didn't, it, I wanted one more gear that I think would have made it much more interesting, much more complex. Um, yeah. And I agree with you both like that, that kind of jealousy and, and just the strong emotions that felt like real emotions uh, and not the kind of performed emotions that we had at the beginning. I was starting to get interested, but by that point it was done. Yeah, I think I kind of err on the side that it could have been a little meaner. I don't know what it is about Gen Z, but we like watching mess and we <laughs> like watching people be horrible. I think that's because maybe more than any other generation, though I'm not actually sure about this. So emphasis on the maybe we're just aware that like life sucks you know, and that people are trash. And so I don't necessarily feel like <laughs> I need to root for anyone. You know, I don't feel like I need to want someone to make it out of that house alive. I'm just there for the mess that they get into while they're in it. And I think that I wanted there to be more of that, you know, and I really enjoyed it when it was there. And I think that's a part of the reason why I really like this movie and the ending, but I just wanted there to be just a little bit more. Well, it's certainly an intriguing mess and a visually striking mess and a mess with a good soundtrack and a mess with some good performances um, and a mess with, at least a few very funny lines. Uh, so certainly if the trailer intrigued you, it's worth checking out. It's Bodies, Bodies, Bodies from May 24. Uh, you can see it in theaters right now. All right, well, now is the time in our podcast when we talk about the business. June, what have we got today? Thank you, Julia. Our only item of business is to tell you about today's Slap Plus segment. I am actually moving next week to Scotland, to Edinburgh, and Julia wanted to do a kind of exit interview with me. So we'll be talking about why I'm leaving, what I'm looking forward to, what I think I'm going to miss, that kind of thing. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear that conversation at the very end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. All right, for our second segment of the show, we are joined by brand spanking new friend of the program, Hillary Fry, perhaps better known to you as the new editor-in-chief of Slate. Welcome, Hillary. Thank you so much for having me. We're very, very excited to have you here. Um, 
Today we are going to discuss for this segment Paper Girls, which is the new Amazon Prime show from showrunners Stephanie Folsom and Christopher C. Rogers, based on a comic by Brendan K. Vaughn and Cliff Chang that's about the travails of four paper girls in the late 1980s who set out one night to deliver their newspapers and find themselves transported in a pod to the future where they meet their future selves and contemplate fate, life, and the universe, and people with weird sort of Buffy-ass costumes walk around with giant blue guns. Um, Before we dig into our conversation, we're going to listen to a clip. Uh, You know, here we're going to hear the four girls in the 1980s as their paper run morning is starting to go very, very strange. Later on in the show, they will start to encounter their grown-up selves in the future. One of them is played marvelously by Ali Wong. But in this clip here, we're going to hear the tweens as they begin to apprehend the coming chaos. Maybe everybody has already been evacuated. That's standard procedure when there's a nuclear attack. No, there's a nuclear attack. You think it could be aliens? I'm just saying we don't know. There's my walkie. language is that? I think it's Russian. That's not funny. Come on. I'm not trying to be funny. Okay, guys, something is seriously wrong here. I know this is gonna sound insane, but did anyone see any actual people on our ride over here? Come on, it's fuck you o'clock early in the morning. No, no, she's right. Just come to think of it, I didn't see cars moving either. Did you? No? All right. Well, uh, Hillary's prime qualification in joining us today, in addition to her editor in chiefdom, is uh, that she is the mom of at least one Paper Girls superfan who I, I believe um, provided some documentation for this podcast. So uh, if you could, Hillary, share your experience with the show and then your response to it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, um, my daughter's 10 and a half, and it's awesome watching this with her because the girls are at least, I know Tip is a 1975er, and that's when I was born. So, like, I love the music in the show, which I could talk about this whole time. Um, my daughter doesn't so much, she's not a Danzig fan. Um, but <laughs> it's really, you know, I think the show is TV 14 or 16 or something, but it's really hitting this amazing moment as a mother-daughter watch for the two of us. Watching these girls, you know, they're going into middle school, my daughter's going into fifth grade, They're dealing with their bodies, their identity, um, their gender expression, which, you know, maybe we didn't talk about so much and so openly in 1988, uh, but is very much part of of our lives now. So it's really, um, in addition to a great watch, I'm really enjoying the show um, as I I get through it with her. Uh, It's giving us a lot to talk about just in our relationship, too. That sounds like an amazing way to watch it. Um, June, can you describe the show's aesthetics a bit and maybe put it in the context of kind of other TV relationship sci-fi, which is a bucket I just invented but would put it into? (laughs) Well, uh, the way I'm interpreting that question, Julia, is for me to use the two words that are most often uh, kind of mentioned uh, within a sentence of, of explaining what Paper Girls is which is to compare it to Stranger Things, uh, another show set in the 80s with a sort of sci-fi vibe that involves riding around on bicycles and that kind of different uh, amount of freedom that kids used to have, at least, uh, you know, according to the stories we tell when we talk about these shows. Um You know, it's a a show with a lot of different things going on. There are these kids discovering their future, which you would think would be kind of enough for a show 
honestly, that's what I would be interested in. But there is also this big bad, a really terrifying peril, which are these people with weird costumes and, and strange looking guns. Uh, and then we also learn, and they, so, you know, people with guns, they can kill you, I guess. And then also we learn something which actually I find more scary, perhaps as an older person, which is that they can also take away your memory. So a lot going on. Um, but in the middle of the sci-fi-ness of it all, that sci-fi bucket, it's a little bit kind of sub-Doctor Who, which is a pretty low sub. Uh, it's a pretty low barrier. Like You often find people watching battles happen somewhere else through a window because they're in a separate building. Um, you know, they, it's just, it was a little bit of a cheap show, which I, I think is fine because I do think that the thing that's most interesting about it are the relationships among the girls and that, that those questions of a person's future. But I, I was a little disappointed with the kind of look and feel of it. I think they could just have spent a bit more money or maybe just avoided some of that obvious cheapness that, that they invoked. What did you think about that? It's interesting that Stranger Things comes up so much because to me, it didn't seem like the clearest parallel. Like, yes, there's the 80s and the music and the bikes, but this felt to me a lot more like it had the the budget and the interests of it felt more in keeping with Doctor mm -hmm. Who or Buffy the Vampire Slayer and that it's about like what it is to be a teenager and then the best possible version of it would be using the fantasy elements, in this case, sci-fi, time travel. And as you know, June, the very potent question of like, you spend your whole tween teen lives wondering, who am I going to be? Who am I going to be? Like, what choice am I making? Who am I hanging out with? What am I wearing? And what yeah. does it mean about who I am and who I'm going to be? And then if you, like, meet who you become and you think they kind of suck. Damn. <laughs> what, is that? what does that tell you? You know, sort of like tween promise meeting middle-age compromise is really rich and interesting and I think the acting is largely really good and and the and the potential of that feels super rich and so you know to me Buffy which is a show about the like pressures and powers of being a teenage girl kind of leaned in to the be-ness of its effects like it felt confident in pacing and tone with its use of the subpar effects and this show had so much promise and potential in its relationships but there was something really slack and strange about the pacing and the priorities and who we met first. I mean, you know, one of my main takeaways from watching the show is like, wow, I'd like to go back and read the comics. It seems like an interesting premise for the comic, but like the whole opening sequence, we just meet a disoriented, wordless Ali Wong in the present slash future in orange light. And it's like, I don't care. Well, there's like five minutes of her just mm -hmm. shuffling around in her bedroom. It's like, I, this is not, you know, I would not have kept watching were it not for the fact that I was discussing it here with you today. Um, how does, how, how did you feel about that aesthetic question, Hillary? And, and how did it intersect with some of the more um, interpersonal stuff that the show does better? It's interesting because I was thinking earlier about how much time we spend watching Ali Wong lumber around also. I, I, I mm -hmm. actually, I'm kind of mesmerized by how her body moves on this show. Yes. Um, it, she's so uncomfortable, and I, I find that kind of compelling. Um, I think for me, watching the interaction between, um, especially Mac and KJ, so right, of the four girls, you know, they're different. I, I, 
I'm not convinced about the acting, actually, with the young actors. I think the young woman who plays KJ is kind of out acting the other three. It doesn't really yes. bother me, but there's something really energetic coming off of her character and seeing you know, the seeds kind of be planted for the way some of the themes are going to unroll in terms of like sexuality and um, encountering their future selves. There's this great moment when Mac, who we don't see really smile at all, lights up in the future at a certain moment. And, you know, I'm sitting there with my daughter. I'm just enjoying picking up these moments to sort of unpack with her later. And What's interesting is when there are some things I've brought up that she is so angry that I saw seeded from the first episode. She's like, how did you know that? I'm like, well, I'm older. So there's, she's getting so much out of it. And it makes me think, actually, I think 10, 11, 12, just, you know, is like maybe the perfect age to enjoy the best of what the show has to offer. Because it's very, Stranger Things is too scary for her. She's not going to go there. But Paper Girls gives you a little taste of that, yeah, in a lo-fi Doctor Who kind of way. But the hook is the dynamics between the girls and their delight and upset of what their future selves are capable of. Let's drill, drill in a little bit more to those characters and the performances. So, June, can you lay out who our four girls are and, and kind of the arcs that we find them on? I sure can, yeah. They're, you know, they're sort of archetypal and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I kind of enjoyed that about it because they complicated it a little bit. But the, the four girls um, are Mac, played by Sophia Rosinski. She's kind of the poor kid. She has a crummy home. Uh, you know, we sense substance abuse in her parents, bullying uh, from her sibling. Um, Tough talking punk rascal. Oh, yeah. And and I tell you, one of the great haircuts of television in the last couple of years, I've had the same haircut since I was about their age uh, in 1988. And I'm seriously thinking about getting a Mac because it's a classic really, really good haircut. one. Yeah. Yeah. So Mac is white. Um, KJ is white. Um, she's played by Fina Strat. So she's a rich kid. Um but she also is a jock. She, we see her carrying her hockey stick around, um, and uh, apparently she's a big fan of Wayne Gretzky. Uh, Tiff is black. She is a nerd, a science nerd. She's got these walkie-talkies that we heard mentioned, but that was her talking about her walkie uh, in, the, uh, in the clip that we heard. And then Aaron, who's kind of the entry character, which I thought was a, I don't know if it's a brave decision, a sort of an interesting decision, because she's in many ways the the most occluded character she's a shy girl uh, she's the sort of the young version of Ali Wong she's played by Riley Light Nellett and she's a you know a, a Chinese American girl who whose mother really doesn't want her to be uh, going off doing a paper round um, but she is determined and and you can see that she has that determination she's very ambitious she wants to be president uh, and she's not very uh, excited when she finds that her future self is the kind of flaccid Ali Wong. I mean, I think you're right, Hillary, that the acting varies pretty widely among the girls and that Fina Stratza, who plays KJ, who in, in addition to being the rich girl jock is also Jewish. Um, she seems, mar she's like luminous and marvelous. And I think she and Aaron give 
the most sophisticated performances of the tweens. Um, oh my goodness, you guys, I thought that Mac was the standout. I thought that she had so much more charisma and, you know, my eyes were always on her. I think that KJ is a great character, great acting, but Mac was a little, you know, kind of out of, out of proportion. You kind of want everybody to be on the same plane. And I just thought she was on another plane of charisma and, and interest. She has the quality of being like the star actor in her class who who got the um, like cross part role of Oliver in the sixth grade production of, of Twist or something. But um, except now that you're describing it, I'm realizing that maybe that's a brilliant actress playing a tween who's putting on a version of herself so perhaps perhaps yeah, i have yeah. to watch the the full eight episode run before we can c- can conclude um mm. the the depth of that actor's talents um hillary you mentioned that you had some important notes brought to you by your daughter as you embarked on this segment, can you leave us with any additional wisdom or perhaps you've just been cribbing from them all along, but, um, and any other <laughs> thoughts that, that came in with you that our listeners need to hear? These were largely, uh, biographical notes. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that is, um, you know, we talked about, but this, this kind of encounter, this idea of encountering your future self when you're so unformed, I think, is really powerful in the show. And especially, you know, again, I also haven't finished. I have three more episodes yet. So I haven't met all of the future selves or the possibilities of them. But I haven't really seen something where the disappointment in um, Aaron's character when she meets Ali Wong is... uh, it's just something, it's something new and something to think about. And for certainly for me to talk about with, with my daughter, what those expectations are and then how sh- the redemption that comes along and the, and the way to sort of the potential of changing the narrative, right? Which is essentially what the show I think is going to end up being all about. Um, but we'll see uh, what happens at the end. All right. Well, Hillary, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your views on Paper Girls. It's streaming now on Amazon Prime. Thank you. All right. For the third segment of our show today, we are joined by the marvelous Ava Lubell, a lawyer formerly of Slate, now uh, among many other accolades, working with Cornell Law's First Amendment Clinic. Hello, Ava. Welcome to the program. This is kind of a dream come true. I'm very happy to be here. All right. Well, the occasion for our conversation today began with the unofficial Bridgerton musical. This was created by Abigail Barlow and Emily Bear on TikTok over the course of 2021. Uh, They began writing songs to a hypothetical Bridgerton musical. They gained fandom. They gained popularity. They were on the Forbes 30 under 30 and inexplicably proud to be there. Uh, And they were nominated for a Grammy and then they won it. And throughout this triumphant run, Netflix uh, seemed to indulge this fan art as major corporations that possess copyrights often decide to do because fan art means fandom and interest and general benefit. Often the calculus is. However, recently, Ms. Barlow and Ms. Bear, at least in Netflix's estimation, went too far. They set out to uh, host live performances of the unofficial Bridgerton musical, and Netflix has slapped them with a lawsuit, which raises some questions. Um, 
could this suit potentially have a bigger chilling effect on fan art projects of this kind? Should we be concerned that corporations are going to be getting too frisky and protecting their copyright? Uh, or instead, should we feel like these ladies crossed a line and it's fine and Netflix is policing its rights uh, after you know demonstrating a fair amount of freedom in the run-up? Uh, we will get to these and other thorny and fascinating legal questions in a moment. But first, I feel it is very important for listeners to this show who perhaps are not familiar with Bridgerton the Musical to hear the type of work we are talking about. So uh, let us play a little bit of If I Were a Man, one of the Bridgerton unofficial musical songs. I guess I have to be a lady Smiling and waving Constantly obeying I guess I need a prince To come and save me Even if I don't need saving I guess I must sit on a throne I don't own Raising the babies we made all alone I guess as a lady there's just some things I've never known But if I were a man, I'd go to Japan Maybe swim in the sand and learn to speak French I'd have the whole world in the palm of my hand I'd finally do what I could, but I can't If I were a man What an accent Wait, say more about the accent because I was confused about the accent. I don't even know what that accent was supposed to be because first, apart from anything else, if, if it is the character that I think they're referencing, the person is actually from the north and is doing a sort of posh accent because the Bridgertons are posh-ish. Uh, and I don't even know what that is. That's somewhere in between. And you know what in between is? It's neither. Mm, okay. All right. Well, so this is the this is the general type of art that we are discussing here. So, um, Ava, in your legal opinion, and this is legally binding advice for us and all of our listeners and um, (laughs) all of the works that they ever work on, um, what what do you make of this lawsuit? What do you think is really going on here and and what's at stake? So, the first thing that kind of surprised me when I heard about this was that Netflix sued at all because Netflix has a reputation for handling things in kind of an elegant way when it comes to copyright infringement. I don't know if you guys know this, but a few years back, there you know started to be fan art around Stranger Things and the way the Netflix lawyers, many of whom I've met and are totally lovely and fun human beings, handled it was to send... Um, kind of their own version of a parody to the individuals who had made kind of a very small work of art and says, Danny and Doug, my walkie talkie is busted. So I had to write this note instead. I heard you launched a Stranger Things pop-up bar, et cetera, et cetera. You kind of get the gist of it. And as someone who's been on the receiving end of a lot of what we call takedown demands for in, you know, potentially inappropriate uses, not that Slate would ever have done such a thing. Um, but you know, usually they're not so friendly. Usually they're not so oriented towards fan service. And so when you dig into this case, what's interesting is that is how Netflix started originally working with these two women is say, you know, we're really impressed by you. We like the spirit of this and probably appreciated it as some form of marketing. Um, and so it started out in this fun, playful place. And, and then it took a turn. And I think that's where we have to start. Like, why did it take a turn? And that's where the questions get a little bit more layered. 
Right. I mean, I was ready to uh, ride to the defense of fair use and free commentary and, um, you know, have a bit of how dare they dudgeon about Netflix's legal approach here when I first set out to start researching this topic. And then the more I read about this topic, the more (laughs) I began to side with Netflix, because essentially, you know, Netflix was like, okay fine to do this on TikTok. Okay, fine to put these on other platforms. Okay, fine to release an album. Like they officially released an album. And then that album was nominated for a Grammy. And then they like beat Andrew Lloyd Webber for a Grammy (laughs) for this music that you just heard there, which raises its own aesthetic questions perhaps we can get to. And um, all of this was permitted, you know, I think probably with some sense of the bargain that, that Ava has laid out. And then they were like, hey, we're going to do these live shows. And Netflix was like, hey, 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 wait. We have Bridgerton live experiences. They've been hosting Bridgerton weekends. You can go to a hotel and dress up and have tea cakes or I don't know what. But it's some kind of thing where you pay to have a Bridgerton experience that that Netflix is making its own money from. So the calculus here or the rationale or at least the expressed rationale is like, okay, this is now you guys cutting into a revenue stream that, you know, is supposed to go back to Netflix uh, as the kind of producing rights owner and also to Julia Quinn, who wrote the initial novels that the show is based on. Um, And they reached out to Barlow and Bear and said, hey, you know, if you're going to do this, you do need to get a license from us for this. Like this is getting into competitive behavior and the women just ignored it, basically. And we're like, nah, I'm going to do it anyway. Like, they, they were sort of brash, bold. I don't know. That's like kind of kind of a wild legal choice. Can you comment on, on that a little bit, Ava? Yeah, I, you know, I have a range of things I work on in my legal roles, but I deal with a ton of licenses. And I think there's this idea that there's all or nothing. Like, you can own something or you can't use it at all. Whereas there's so many middle grounds. You can give someone a license for one really particular use. You can give someone a license for a broad set of uses. You can cut it down by, you know, by area in the world. You can cut it down by period of time. Like there's lots of flexibility. And, you know, I don't think, I mean, Netflix has had a difficult couple of quarters, but I'm not, wouldn't say that this is really going to make the you know, a big difference for their bottom line. But the principle at stake is valuable and not just for Netflix and not just for Julia Quinn, but for a lot of content creators who are having a difficult time monetizing. And that's why we've seen the growth of things like there's now a small claims copyright court because, you know, we want to make sure creators are compensated for, you know, the work they create. That was, this is an internal debate I've had with lots of clients where, they are journalists who are creating work and they want there to be protection in the work they're doing. You know, they're doing reporting, they're contributing thought, analysis, experience. We want that to be protected. And just as similar, they want to, you know, make sure that they respect someone else's use. So you, there's a reason that Netflix tends to be pretty cordial is because there's an ecosystem of creators and everyone needs to be respectful of one another. And you don't want to go to litigation. And the reason you don't want to go to litigation is because copyright is like a black hole of legal nonsense. To me, it's just like, it makes no sense um, it's very, very fact specific. It's very, very judge specific. There's some people who will say the moment you monetize, like that is an infringement. That is not at all true. That is a hundred percent legally false, but there, there is a respect principle at place. Um, 
I, you know, the idea that we're going to cast these guys as the underdogs. I mean, they won a Grammy, 30 under 30. Can you think of a higher office to, to occupy than on that hallowed <laughs> list? And, you know, they're, they are institutionalists. The Kennedy Center is about institutionalists as it can possibly get. Right. I mean, it, there was a sense that the, that the kind of Bridgerton fandom turned on them a little bit. June, what struck you in, in reading up on this contretemps? I would say the the way that we're changing our sympathies around copyright. Uh, it was interesting to hear you talk about creators asserting their rights, because I think for a while there's been a lot of grumbling about, you know, why are people extending copyrights too long? That We've lost a sense of what this is for. And just for, uh, you know, people like Julia Quinn and uh, Shonda Rhimes to be the institutions or the people where the sympathy now lies because there is this creator economy that everybody's got a side hustle that everybody's you know trying to start a youtube channel or you know to to whatever it is that they're doing and there's more respect for that feeling that some protection uh for you know and it's not just corporations you know shondaland is a pretty big corporation but but we now see you know well Shonda deserves uh you know some credit and I think she does and I'm actually also sympathetic to that but that feels like something is changing there you know June it's so interesting that dynamic you're describing because I think that so much of my response to this case has to do almost with the etiquette of it like if Netflix's position were from the jump, no fan art should ever exist. This is a curse upon the land. Nobody on TikTok can play with any of our IP, which like that would be a drag. That would be such a drag. So in a world where Netflix from the beginning had gone like full kablamo on these women, I, my sympathies would be more strongly with them. However, I feel like they have taken a judicious approach of like, yeah, let's have, let's have this, work for a while. Okay, it is still ours, though. Like everything you have done so far, the Grammy, all of it is something we have let you do, because we have a right, but we have declined to assert it. And now you have hit the line where we would like to assert our right. And for these people who've benefited so much from that largesse to be like, nah, (laughs) just seems like kind of a dick move to me. But I will also confess to being colored here by the fact that I think the unofficial Bridgerton musical is terrible fan art. So this is relevant. Is it relevant? Not that it's terrible, but the actual nature of the fan art itself. So I had, I have never listened to it until very recently as in earlier this morning. And I think the word (laughs) I already used is treacly. And I was like, well, could this be considered a commentary on Bridgerton in that it has this very Beauty and the Beast 90s Disney vibe to it. And like, it's so bright and, you know, like, oh, is this could be like, oh, this is what Bridgerton is selling us if I were a man. And I was like, but Bridget- Bridgerton is also already a commentary on all of these tropes. So it's actually not doing anything to transform the ideas embodied in Bridgerton. You know, if this were a musical you know, a, a reductive piece of fan art and like The Sound of Music or Mary Poppins or, or it was really talking about, you know, gender norms is embodied by old society, 
that that would be one thing, but it's commenting on a commentary. So the idea that it's just a whole new work that's breaking ground and it just, I, I don't buy it. I mean, even suggesting, I mean, this has always been my favorite part of fair use law and, and copyright law as I understand it, which is that you are, you know, you have stronger legal ground if you are commenting on satirizing, responding to the work and trying to advance a conversation. Like I kind of love that that, that notion of commentary and analysis is enshrined somewhere in our legal apparatus as, as a one-time editor of a magazine of opinion and commentary. And like, I know that the know it when you see it standard is about porn, but I do (laughs) feel like it applies here, which is like, is this a transformative work? And is this a work that has its own value and is saying its own thing about the world? And like, no, like, I'm sorry, (laughs) but this, this musical is very, very bad. And if in fact, Shonda Rhimes and Julia Quinn had set out to make a Bridgerton musical, they would have hired people who were like a better lyricist with less derivative works. I mean, even just in that clip I played. So If I Were a Man is the title of a recent hit by Taylor Swift. Um, The kind of like la-di-la, if I was on the crown intonation feels like super derivative of um, the King songs from Hamilton, I think. Uh, the the kind of swerving, is it posh or is it cockney nature of the accent? June has already dissected. Um, I think the most charitable interpretation, Ava, is yours, which is like the commentary is what if Bridgerton was not um, kind of a very 2020s um, response to the petticoats genre, but was in fact just early 90s Beauty and the Beast. Um, but it's just not that smart like the it's just not that good and 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 so i i my judgment is clouded by my judgment <laughs> if that well, my legal judgment that. is clouded by my aesthetic judgment well see that's the part that actually where where my hackles get raised because yeah i agree not good but well, does it have to be good to escape the kind of the bounds of of licensing and copyright i mean does that make it more transformative if it's good well i don't think it, it, it technically doesn't matter, but it does go to people's incentives, right? And those incentives can cut either way if it's good. You're like, well, I don't want someone to capitalize this versus it's good. This is awesome. And I'm, you know, this happens with major league sports all the time. Like this is such a cool thing that we want to promote it. So it goes back to the the marketing question. But I do think the good, the good or badness of the actual piece is relevant when we talk about moral rights, which is like a whole other area of copyright law, it's a little bit more European than US. But the idea is like, I as the owner of a piece of work, like I have an interest in the way you adapt my project, and that it be good and consistent with my values and my vision. We're seeing Lin-Manuel Miranda, there is an adaptation of Hamilton that I think went that he just set his lawyers on because it went very contrary to his values. And as creators, the idea that you just you know, you make a TV show and it's off into the world and you have no emotional investment in it when it is this project that you worked on with so many other human beings and there was a lot of effort and sweat and blood and tears that went into it. Like, of course you care. We don't just disclaim our emotional attachment to the works we create. I feel that about like a paragraph of contract I've drafted. So I can't imagine (laughs) what Shonda Rhimes and Julia Quinn feel. Since you mentioned that Hamilton situation, the thing that absolutely blew my mind about that, I mean, obviously, that is just completely wrong. You cannot turn a work like Hamilton into this, you know, religious, anti-gay, anti, you know, whatever. But I learned from that case that in in church, as part of a service, you can, there's no such thing as copyright law. You can play whatever the hell you want. 
where did that? I mean, I know where it came from, but that is so wrong. Sidebar. <laughs> you, you, we're learning many legal facts on this on this segment. Well, um, I will say, June, to your question, I, I, I think it's less that its goodness is what makes it defensible or indefensible. It's more that in order to be a commentary, in my view, like in order to, to be transformative and to be saying something about the underlying text, you have to reach a certain level of of sophistication in what you're making for it to be a successful comment and really not just derivative. And that's what, that's what feels like it's at the, at the core of this fight. So hopefully um, even if they lose or settle, it will not um, frost over the rest of the generative fanfic internet. Uh, And Ava, thank you so much for coming on the show to walk us through this battle. My pleasure. Let's hope they get better advisors going forward and keep making creative things. All right. Well, if you want to know more about this, you can check out a slate piece on the subject, Why Bridgerton Fans Turned Against the Bridgerton Musical by Laura Wheatman Hill. All right. Uh, June, the time has come to endorse. What do you got? Oh, my God. I am so excited about my endorsement this week. So I've been preparing to move and it's a really like it, it sucks your brain power. Uh, and I have been unable to read, but I have been listening to audiobooks. And very specifically, I've been listening to the lesbian romance novels of a writer called Harper Bliss, who I'd never heard of. I found them just by Googling lesbian romance, not Googling actually, but in uh, Libby, the, you know, where you can borrow audiobooks from your local library. I just did lesbian romance. That's how I found it. I It was just by chance. I'm now obsessed. Um, she's very prolific. And she is the romance writer most like a soap opera writer. And I, if there is one genre I cannot get enough of, it is soap opera. So, for example, she has 10 books in this series called the Pink Bean series. The Pink Bean being a uh, a coffee shop in Darlinghurst, uh, Sydney, mm-hmm. Australia. And there's 10 of these and they all kind of like, there's a lot of connections between them. Uh, you know, somebody will show up in one book. Uh, they're a customer of the of the of the coffee shop and then they, you know, go to their TV job where they're another character from another, you know, so they're always interacting. And then there's another series called French Kissing. Don't like the title, but what can you do? Uh, and these involve a whole bunch of women in Paris. And this series is so much of a soap opera that they are not even called books. They're called season one, season two. That's the book. And then instead of chapters, there are episodes like this fully kind of sketched out like like TV, like soap operas. And here's the thing. I love the ambition of these books. So, for example, I'm not going to give it away exactly because it would it would be a spoiler. But in the French Kissing series, one of the characters is a very, very eminent French politician. Fictional, but there's a lot of kind of accurate uh, detail about French politics um, and then in another standalone book that, that I think Harper Bliss was a co-writer of, the main character is the second daughter of the Queen of England. So she's a full-on hmm. princess. Hmm. And this, the story begins with, um, you know, like a photo shoot for the royal wedding, which is a lesbian wedding that's going to happen. Anyway, I'm probably not making these books sound as glorious as they are. I will also mention there is a lot of sex, some of it kinky. But I'm just, I, I, my life has been transformed by this author. And I, I just think everybody should be enjoying French kissing, for example. 
All right, this is a ringing endorsement. I'm I'm all for the books that um, that you can stay attached to when you've got a lot going on in your brain. Exactly. So yeah. uh, this sounds like a hearty endorsement for that type of read. What are you endorsing this week, Julia? Okay, well, there's always a little bit of a summer strut afterglow when the odds and ends that didn't make it onto the main playlist still still circle around my Spotify as I keep listening to the slightly bigger list than the final cut. Um, one of our self-prescribed edicts for at least a lot of us on that show is that we try not to recommend songs by artists you might know. So I did not include the song by up-and-coming act The Rolling Stones, but there was a really great <laughs> Rolling Stones song recommended that I did not know. It's called 100 Years Ago uh, 2020, which... I have not looked up yet whether that means it was the 2020 version of it or just 100 (laughs) years ago from 2020 or what. It does not have a particularly Roaring Twenties vibe as a song. But it has a bit of a um, shaggy quality to it. It's like Rolling Stones by way of the band or something. It doesn't feel quite as sinewy as some of their um, the, the songs that I most associate with the Rolling Stones. Um, it's got a little bit more lushness to it. And uh, I just recommend it to our, our listenership as a, as a Rolling Stones deep cut. Um, or maybe not so deep cut. Like I said, Chris Melanfi's not here and... I, I I can't Google songs. I'm I'm, I'm contractually prevented from doing so. Only Chris Malafi can do that research for me. So we'll have to give you more information at another time. But uh, the song is 100 <laughs> Years Ago, 2020, by little known act, The Rolling Stones. Hear that? Hear that? Lead singer is really uh, gonna gonna go somewhere. I'll check him out. All right, June, thank you so much for holding down the fort today. And thank you to our three wonderful guests, uh, Nadira Goff, Hilary Fry, and Ava Lubell. You can find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page. That's at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Send us suggestions for topics, argue with us, whatever you want. Our intro music is by the composer Nick Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. I'm Julia Turner. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today, we are going to grill Miss June, who is about to embark on a major transatlantic voyage to once again become a resident of uh, the island of her birth. Um, (laughs) She's been, how long have you been here in America? How many decades? Nearly 40 years. Yeah. So um, this is, this is big. Yeah. This better not mean that you're never coming on our show again. I will work through any time difference to get the dulcet <laughs> tones of Miss Thomas on the Culture Fest. So um, you're not actually allowed to leave the country unless you commit to continued Culture Fest appearances. No problem whatsoever. Okay, for you. Um, but tell us a little bit about what's what's motivating this. You know, I mean, it, it, it's um, 
it's a big life choice to become an expat and probably also a big one to unbecome an expat. So, to, you know, bear your soul. What's going on here, June? Yeah. So I quit my sort of day job at Slate in April, I guess, April 1st. Uh, and, uh, you know, partly of that was I I'd sold a book last year. I really wanted to focus on writing this book. And I just kind of wanted a change, you know, maybe a like a kind of less chapter in my career. And that is great. But it also means that you no longer have, for example, health insurance or, you know, you just have less of a paycheck. And New York City, where I've been living, is very expensive and when I sort of thought, well, where else could we move to? It No other American city that was uh, possible for me because I don't drive and I don't want to drive uh, was just going to be even more expensive uh, or not that much less expensive. And so it was time to think of a, you know, like, okay, so think outside the box. And, you know, during the uh, COVID years, um, <laughs> as if that's in the past. But anyway, you know, I, I was more aware of my, you know, my mom broke her hip, for example, at one point. And it, you know, it was at a time when you couldn't travel, you weren't, you know, it just wasn't possible. And that felt a little bit uh, scary, or just kind of shattered my illusions of what it means to live in a different country from where you were born. Um, and also just, it felt like, okay, this could this could be fun. This could be different. This is just um, something that's possible for me. I realize it's not possible for everyone. I was born in a different country. My partner uh, applied for a visa so that, you know, she she could live in that country and, and it came through. So, it, yeah, it just felt like, let's let's try this thing. So essentially, America's failure to provide health care is costing us June Thomas. Uh, you said it, yeah. Maybe so. Uh, That's right. a big part of it. All right. Yeah. All right. Um, tell me, like, just on a day-to-day basis, like, what daily things are most exciting about your move? Like, what 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 will you be able to do by see that that you can't get here that will scratch like a homecoming itch or maybe <laughs> not even a homecoming itch, maybe like they invented it since you left, but you like it type itch. Oh, my God. Well, actually, that's one thing that I really don't know what to expect, because I did leave so long ago that I don't really know what life is like in Britain. I think when you leave a country, it kind of gets frozen, just as it was when you left it. And, you know, it Britain has definitely changed uh, since, uh, well, when did I leave? 1985? I can't even remember when I left exactly. Uh, no, before then. Anywho, um, but... I'm going to be living in Edinburgh, and I'm very excited about Edinburgh. It's a very walkable city, a small city. Found a really cute house in a super cool neighborhood, Dean Village, uh, where we can walk down this beautiful kind of waterway that goes through Edinburgh. It's called the Water of Leith. And as of a few years ago, there's a, a pathway uh, that, that kind of you can walk alongside the water. Very nice. Uh, and that will actually not just be a little nature walk, but how we get to the place where we do our shopping, the place where we can, uh, you know, go out to dinner, uh, the place uh, we can also walk uh, by going in the other direction to the Modern Art Museum. We will be walking to the train station. Um, you know, it's just a different kind of lifestyle, not that in 
New York, I'm driving around, as I say, I never drive around, but um, I just think being, basically you can get to any place in the city by foot almost. Um, and then there is a very extensive bus and uh, tram network to go to the further outskirts. But I have been thinking about that. You know, I'm not so excited about the television, honestly. When you go to Britain, you realize, you know what, the telly's kind of crap. We we see the, the two good shows uh, per month mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. here and the rest of the time there's a lot of junk um, but I think actually it will be an opportunity for me to focus on my writing which I've never gotten a little bit behind on because moving is incredibly disruptive of a person's schedule uh, but then in the evening I can you know I'm still going to be doing uh, working uh, and we're going to be probably taping in the evening my evening most of the time uh, and then uh, you know, when I produce Outward, similarly, uh, it'll be a different, I'll be able to kind of do that slate work, uh, you know, in the evening. And that's going to be different. I'm sure it'll take some getting used to. Um, so I don't know. And I think I'm very excited by not knowing what it's going to be. Like, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, ha- to, to ha- be in a period of discovery of a new place. Yeah, as someone who moves cities in midlife, it's it kind of like awakens all your circuits to not be in a routine and not know where the dry cleaner is or what restaurant you like or what your favorite breakfast order is. It sort of can be exhausting, but then it's also fun to have all that discovery. Um, Okay, here is remedial Julia moment. Edinburgh is in Scotland. Mm -hmm. You are from Manchester. I am. Not in Scotland. (laughs) No, no. This is where I reveal. I need you to explain once and for all. When is it okay to use UK? What is when is it oh okay God. to use England? When is it okay to use Britain? And so I I, I need the I need like the the yeah. official June uh, consensus on that because despite being an editor for a living, I've never completely nailed it. Like you surprised <laughs> me by mentioning that you are going to be in Britain by being in Scotland. Yeah, and then yeah. separately. Like, what is the, you know how people make those maps where they put, like, the Brooklyn boroughs on L.A. or they put the American states on Australia or something? Those are always very reductionist Mm. and stupid. But, like. do it. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't feel like a big leap to be moving to this Scottish city when you were born in an English city. Or is it just like, whatever, I'm moving to Maryland from Rhode Island. Well, I was surprised by how easy it is just to go back, just on a very basic level. Like, I thought, do I have to kind of reapply? Will I? And they're like, no, you can just come back. It's fine. Um, and yeah, you know, it's Britain. I, 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 I'm sorry that you asked me for the whole, you know, United Kingdom of uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland part because I actually need to consult my uh, Associated Press style book for the, the proper answer. And I also have to admit that it's been a real effort for me as an English woman to learn not to say I'm going to England when I'm going to Scotland because it is, uh, you know, it is different. But that's also part of the appeal because uh, I don't, you know, the whole thing in England specifically is the whole North and South thing. And I'm from the North and you know, I grew up in a very working class home, but I am now very bourgeois. I have been completely bourgeoisified, bourgeoisified, whatever the right verb would I like be. That one it has a little swish to it. Yeah, exactly. By my life in America, and I can't go back to Manchester because 
now I'm kind of a posh girl, but I'm still actually a poor girl. So that was just complicated. Scotland is a nice, uh, you know, it, it's like free space, you know, something on the, um, uh, on a on a board game. Um, and also, like, Edinburgh, first of all, is very beautiful. Secondly, it is an international capital. It's got an international airport. It's got a parliament there. I am planning to go hang out and, you know, watch parliamentary debates in the Scottish parliament. Um, oh, bless you, June. Do they have it, question time? Uh, yes, they do. Uh, you know, about sort of slightly different matters because some things like immigration policing are, uh, you know, determined uh, for the whole larger country of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, but next year, probably, depending on if London allows it, there's going to be a referendum uh, about independence again. And so, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening there. Uh, and also, um, I've only spent approximately less than three weeks of my life in Edinburgh, so I can't even claim to know it all that well. But... I have to admit that it appeals to me that it's kind of the posh bit of Scotland. Like, compared to the rest of Scotland, it is extortionately expensive. It's a lot cheaper than uh, Brooklyn. Um, but it's, you know, it's a little bit... It's it's a little bit fancy, and since I'm a fancy lady now, I, I'm looking forward to that. I'm just very excited about about a new period of, of discovery while also, like... Okay, so it's five hours ahead of New York. I can still kind of live my New York life, except I can't go shop at Union Market. But uh, that's about, I don't know that it's really going to be all that different. Or I don't know that I'm going to be all that cut off from my American life. June, if there is a referendum, how will you vote? Are you going to be agitating for, for unity? Or are you going to go full Scott? Oh my God! I think I might go full Scott. Like it I'm seems very like aware. your kind of vibe. Yeah, right. I know. I'm very aware that it's actually not all that great to live in a small country. Small countries are bullyable. They are. They don't really have necessarily the resources that they need. It's it's nice to have a bit of power behind you, but I think returning to the European Union, which you know would mean using the euro, which uh, has its downsides. Uh, but, uh, and I have to tell you, in Scotland, they have different pound notes. And it's a really funny thing that, as an English person, I was always very aware that, like, you get these weird Scottish notes. And when we were there a few weeks ago finding a place to live, I heard all these English people say, don't want to be funny, but could you, do you have any English pound notes? Or actually, not pound notes now, but do you have any English fivers? Do you have any English tenors? So, like, I'm, I'm all ready to be like, I'm using the Scottish all right. fiber all right. because I'm, yeah, so I'm all ready. I'm ready. All right. Before we, before we get to um, the, the AP's edict on lingo, <laughs> I want to ask one question the other direction, which is what will you miss? What are, like, specific objects, routines, Ooh. rituals, apart from shopping uh, at that, that Union Market, as you just described? What are, what are is there, like, a... <laughs> The candy, a baked good, uh, something oh, I'm not goodness. thinking of that will be hard to hard to say goodbye to. You know, I'm not ready for that. It's true. It took me a very long time to stop when I would go to England to visit. I would come home with these like suitcases of baked beans and English candy and English biscuits for many years. And now when I go like, eh, whatever. Um, it does take a long time to kind of wean yourself from that very typically, uh, the typical taste of the place where you live. I think just the like 
this particular neighborhood of Park Slope. It's so like you just everything is here. You know, you, you're a minute from a bodega. You're a minute from 25 liquor stores and 35 laundries. Um, that I think I've learned that it doesn't quite work like that in Edinburgh. You know, there's residential areas and then there's shopping areas and they don't really mix. But I'm not really, I'm not sure yet what the taste or the experience that I'm going to miss is going to be. But that's one I definitely will report back on. All right, report back and then we, we can organize like a letter writing campaign. <laughs> It'll be like the people sending bandages to the front will send you like Nabisco Nilla wafers or whatever the heck it is you end up wanting. <laughs> Um, yeah. Okay, well, we do have, as always, Nadira ready with the info. England <laughs> is the country. Britain is the landmass. UK is the whole shebang. Of course, minus the Republic of Ireland. So just Northern mm-hmm. Ireland is, plus the landmass of Britain is the UK. And then I asked, bonus question, what about Britain versus Great Britain? And I'm told maybe those are just the same thing. I don't know. Yeah. If anyone can uh, yeah. shed further light on that. I always thought the great had significance, right. but it's apparently just a kind of meaningless qualifier. I think it's just so during the Olympics, you can be team GB because if you were just team B, that would just be boring. But why aren't you team UK? Do the know. Scots compete separately? No, no. They do in some sports, but not in others. I think that's whether they, they have their own, uh, like they don't have a Scottish Olympic whatever but they do have a scottish football association so they play football differently anyway it's all very yeah Hmm. Hmm. okay well at the at the 24 games we're going to have you back for your olympics (laughs) corresponding and you can report further on the scots uh, prospects in the pole vault um all right june thank you so much for sharing this you are such a beloved voice on this show and other slate shows and i know so many of our listeners are just wishing you Godspeed and great joy and discovery and in your new life. And um, you can't possibly be too lonely. I'm sure there are listeners there (laughs) who will greet you with open arms and the rest of us around the world will be um, so excited for you on this adventure. So thanks for coming on today and good luck and don't be a stranger. We will come (laughs) there and um, force you not to be. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Julia, it, um, I have already heard from some listeners of other podcasts. So yeah, give me a, give me, send me an email. Uh, Come like on, Culture up. Fest. The Culture yeah. Festers of Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Come through. I don't know how to say it. Oh, do us <laughs> proud. Um, thank you so much, Slate Plus listeners, for supporting Slate, for supporting this show, for listening to us, and for joining me in wishing June bon voyage. We'll see you next week.